0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to, actually, Philippians 3 is where we're going to start. Philippians chapter 3 today. Please go ahead and turn there. And we will look into uh, what Paul has to say in that passage before we get into 2 Corinthians. Philippians chapter 3. Before we uh, get into that, how about I open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made. It's a beautiful day where we go outside and see your handiwork everywhere. Even in a fallen world, your glory shines so bright, and your presence is undeniable. Your power is clear, and Lord, we worship you alone. God, we ask today as we get into your word that you would help us to see all that it is that you have for us. Though I am a fallen man, Lord, help me to not get in the way today, but that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask this together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, when we do get to 2 Corinthians 11 today, we're going to see Paul speaking like an insane person. In uh, 2 Corinthians 11:23, 23, Paul has this little, like almost parenthetical statement where he says, I speak as if insane, so we're going to go to a passage where this apostle of Jesus Christ says, "I'm speaking as though I'm an insane person." And I wonder uh, if you can think back to some time in your life when you've met a, a madman. I've I've met a madman or two. Not all of them knew they were madmen, but uh, I've met some. The probably the most prominent time that I can remember in my life was at the Missouri State Fair. The, the town that Melissa and I are from is home to the Missouri State Fair, so that's what it's known for, if you're wondering. Pretty impressive, I know. Just try to calm down, you know. I'm just a man, okay? <laughs> but uh, we're from Sedalia, Missouri, home of the Missouri State Fair. And when I was a kid, you know, you go there every year with your, with your friends, and you do the thing. And one year, there was this booth there that said, like, the world's most dangerous man or the world's most insane person or whatever. And you see these kinds of things at uh, these events, like the bearded lady and all that, and it's like, you know, kind of a gimmicky deal. So I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I, we got in line for that, and there was a little booth that you could walk up into. Uh, you would just walk through and come out the other side, tiny little thing. And so we walk in, and to my surprise, there's like a real-life man behind bars, Who's very strong and very scary looking, trying to grab us. And we're in a booth, and there's like this little hallway, and you, you back up and you can't back up, and there's a wall right there. And I remember like needing a new pair of shorts after that because I was, you know, fifth or sixth grade and thought, oh, okay, we'll go in and see the little the little guy. But no, this was like a real scary guy who was insane. I mean, he had to be some sort of a criminal working doing that job at the fair, you know. Uh, and And it was really, really scary for me. And so today, what Paul's going to do is invite us into his booth where he gets to play the madman. And that's what we're eventually going to get at after we look at Philippians chapter 3. But I want us to start here because I think this will set the tone for what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 11. So let's read looking at Philippians 3 verse 2 down through verse 11, an amazing passage of Scripture. Paul writes to this church in Philippi, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. "'Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ.' "...far more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul just couldn't stop that sentence, could he? I mean, just there's so much he wanted to say. He counted it all as rubbish, all of his stuff that he had built up over the course of his life. So I want to start off today by talking about perspectives on worthiness. And we're going to hang out in Philippians 3 for a while, so just stay right there if you're turned there with me. Let's talk about perspectives on worthiness and the differing ways that people can view their personal worthiness before God. The first way that people can establish, or sorry, can view their worthiness before God is that they see themselves as qualifying themselves for God's favor. People qualifying, or you could say establishing themselves before God to earn His favor, to earn His blessing, you could say. These people would view view it as our responsibility to make ourselves good before God. God says, here are the rules. Here's what you do to get a blessing from me. ABC, one, two, three, go do it. And you earn up your credibility with God and say, I did it. Now, God, give me the blessing that is owed to me. You view your worthiness as something that achieves or earns something with God. In this view, you are a very active agent, aren't you? If that's your view of salvation, you have to be very active. You are the one who moves the needle in your relationship with God. Right now, God's grumpy with you, but if you want God to be happy with you, you go out and you work really hard for it. You, you do what he has told you to do. You figure out a way to do it. And then God gives you a star or he pats you on the head or whatever it is. And now he's happy with you. And all people must work for God. That's this view. Also this view, it sees our works as a means to salvation. So you are on like the bottom step of a staircase, salvation is up there, and you start going up the steps. God gives you the steps of what you are to do and how you are to do it, and if you do it the right way, at the end, you earn from God heaven. You earn from God salvation or even exaltation. It is up to you to qualify yourself for God's recognition of your goodness, because if you just do it at the end, you're qualified for God to say... You're awesome. It is a very laughable idea, isn't it? There was a uh, teacher I had, uh, my junior uh, class, English literature literature teacher. She uh, was Roman Catholic and a real nice, sweet lady, but did not understand the gospel. And I was a new believer my junior year. I became a Christian between my sophomore and junior years of high school. And uh, she was taking me to a Missouri football game one day because she had... uh, uh, season tickets to Mizzou to go watch them play football. Very nice tickets on the 50-yard line toward the front. I don't know how this single older lady did that, but I took it. And uh, so we were on our way there, and I remember her saying a couple of things. I was a new Christian trying to process what she was saying. And, And one of the things she said was talking about one of her coworkers, another teacher of mine who had just had a baby. She just couldn't believe they hadn't had that baby baptized yet. Like, oh, can you believe it? They just, they haven't got, got that baby baptized. And, you know, I was a, a sapling in the faith, and I was just, oh, yeah, what? <laughs> you know, um, okay, uh, baptism's good, but I don't think you're supposed to do that to a baby. And uh, another thing she said was, if being a Christian was easy, everyone would do it. And I've thought about that quote through the years. It's like, that's a, kind of a weird quote to have, a weird thing to say. And I think where she was coming from was, look, you, as a Christian takes work, and at the end of that work, God recognizes you as good, and you get salvation. You get His blessing. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church teaches a works-based system of salvation. And for her, from her perspective, it's like, well, yeah, it's hard. That's why people don't do it, because everyone wants salvation. But hey, being a Christian was easy. Everyone would do it. That's why only a few do, because it's tough, and I'm willing to put in the work. It's very prideful, isn't it? very arrogant, very man-centered. So one way of looking at our worthiness is that we establish ourselves, we qualify ourselves for God's approval. But the other way of looking at our worthiness is this, we are established and qualified by God. God establishes us, God qualifies us. We don't earn from Him blessing as a wage, we Receive from Him blessing as a free gift. He, by His grace, gives us salvation. We are totally dependent on Him to make us good. That's the other way of viewing it. If we have any worthiness at all, it's because God did it. God gave it to us. It was God's work, not our work. So instead of being an active agent in building up our worthiness before God, we're actually quite passive in this, aren't we? If we were to take this view, we don't see ourselves as the ones moving the needle, but instead we see God as entering into our lives or interrupting our lives, you could say, and doing a work that makes us good. His work, not our work. It's not ultimately us, but it's God's work in us. In Galatians 2.20, Paul articulated this view for himself when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. How's that for a good work to earn salvation, right? You can't earn good works if you're crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's God's work, isn't it? Could someone who earned his own righteousness before God say that? No, not a chance. If you are earning God's blessing, you don't say, it's Christ in me. I've died, and it's Christ in me. You would say, it's all me. It's all me. I've established this. I've earned this. So if you see yourself as passive, and you see your worthiness as a gift of God, a blessing from God that's freely given as a gift by His grace, then you are passive in the process, and it's, you see your works as a result of salvation. Your works are no longer a means to salvation, but your works are a result of salvation. After God saves us, after God pronounces us holy on the basis of Jesus, then our good works flow from there. The fruit comes from the life that God already gave us. You can't take a dead plant and command fruit to come out of it, can you? you? I mean, you can try, (laughs) Uh, but you're not going to be very successful. If God gives life, if God calls you good, if God puts His Spirit within you, then the good works come as a result of salvation. Consider Philippians 2, 12 and 13. If you're there in Philippians, you just flip over one page perhaps. It's an amazing two two verses here. It says, Paul writing to this church, "'So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence,' Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You are working out the salvation that God has given you. You can't work out your salvation if He hasn't given you salvation. So God gives you salvation, pronounces you good in His sight on the basis of what Jesus has done, and from that point, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The fruit of faith is the good works that you perform. They are not a means to salvation, but they are a result of salvation. Now, which of these two views on worthiness, considering it as something that we actively build up, working our way up the staircase, versus God does it to us and God gives us life and God pronounces us good and brings about fruit, which one of those two views does Paul take in Philippians 3? Well, it's clearly the latter, isn't it? He clearly considered his own works to be nothing before God. But instead, it was all about the righteousness he was gifted, the holiness, the goodness he was gifted in Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 4 with me of Philippians 3. The middle of verse 4, Paul says, look, if there's anybody out there who wants to put confidence in the flesh, that means who thinks they're really good at a works-based system of salvation. If there's anyone out there who can do that, I far more. He says, verse 5, he was circumcised the eighth day, just as all good Jewish boys were. He was of the nation of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And when it came to the law, he was a Pharisee. What an amazing pedigree Paul had. Paul came from really strong Jewish stock. His parents had him circumcised on the eighth day. They knew their tribal lineage. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was proud of who he was ethnically. And we know quite a bit about that kind of view here, don't we? People around here can get really fired up about their pedigrees. Have you ever met somebody who's got ancestry back to Brigham, and that person knows it, and is really excited to tell you about it? This is the same thing that would happen in Israel. People would be very proud of their pedigree, their standing before others, before other Jews, where they could say, well, yes, I am of this and of this and of this, and I'm actually related to that guy, and yada, yada, yada. His inherited pedigree was very important to him. But he also had this credibility that he earned. Look at verse 6. In Paul's former life, you could say, he was very zealous. He showed that by being a persecutor of the church. And as to the righteousness which is found in the law, he was found blameless. Of course, this isn't in God's eyes. God could pin any of us to the wall through his law. But as you know, cultural Jews were concerned, Paul was blameless. He was just he's a perfect guy. He's a perfect Jew. So Paul had this resume of an amazing pedigree, this amazing credibility that he earned through his works, that anyone would look at him and say, he's qualified. If there's anybody going to heaven, it's Paul. Like a lot of people do with Mother Teresa, you know, like, oh, if she's not going to heaven, I'm not going to heaven. How much more people could say that about Paul? He had all the right things. He checked all the right boxes. But then he goes on and he says, I count it all as loss. It's all rubbish. It's trash. His pedigree, his credibility, take it out with the garbage. It's loss. That's because there are two ways, two options for how you consider your own worthiness. You either trust in it or you set it aside in order to rest in God. Foolishness will tell you, look at all the good things you've done and rest in them. Hold on to them. Find assurance in how good you are. Find assurance in your own efforts. That's foolishness. Foolishness would say, yeah, platform yourself as someone who has qualified himself or herself. But look at what wisdom says in verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You can't have both. You can't have your own efforts that you're resting in and Jesus to rest in. It has to be one or the other. Someone who comes to God and says, I've been a good person. Well, that person doesn't have Jesus. It's one or the other. Someone who comes to God and says, on my own, I am totally unacceptable. But I trust in Jesus Christ. That person is received by Him because that person has true righteousness. Again, verse 8, Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be loss." In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. If you're trusting in your own efforts to earn blessing from God, to earn salvation from God, to earn exaltation from God, you're putting dung on your trophy case. Can you imagine, I mean, maybe you have like a nice curio cabinet or something in your house where you display things. Take down all those things and go out with a pooper scooper and go around your neighborhood and find all the stuff and put it in the cabinet and bring someone by and say, what do you think? (laughs) That's what your good deeds are for salvation, to earn salvation. That's what your good deeds are in God's sight. Take those filthy rags and put them on display. Make that your trophy case. That's how God sees it. Paul says, I count it, but dung, rubbish, all that pedigree, all that credibility, it's lost, it's dead to me because I want Jesus alone and Jesus is enough. He recognized that he needed true righteousness. Verse nine, Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. I mean, how, how backwards is this to every man-made religion in the world that Paul says, I don't want my own righteousness? Because he was really good at that game. He could, have, he could have ridden that train for the rest of his life, earning his own righteousness and credibility among men. He could have earned all that. Everyone would have thought he was a hot shot to his grave. And he says, I don't want that anymore because I want Jesus. Jesus. I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. There's a righteousness that you can have that's eternal, that's unfading, that's absolutely permanent, and it goes to the very core of who you are. It rests in your soul. This righteousness comes from God, and it comes by faith alone. You can't earn it, You can't change yourself. You can't transform yourself. You can't cause yourself to be born again, to get it. There's nothing you can do to get this. God has to do it. Your pedigree won't get you there. Your credibility won't get you there. The the way that your neighbors or others in the church view you won't get you there. The only thing that can get you there, the only way that you can be saved, is by the power of God, by appealing to the work of Jesus Christ, by looking to a righteousness outside of yourself and asking God to do this work in your heart, to cleanse you of all sin and to give you eternal life. And he does it in an instant. He declares you righteous in an instant. He makes you right with him. He, he reconciles you as your creator instantaneously, once for all, never again to be lost, never again to slip back into the rubbish, but to always be held by His hand, by His power as a saved human being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. When you trust in the finished work of Jesus who died in your place for your sin, who rose again on the third day for your justification, when you trust in Him alone for salvation, that's righteousness. There is nothing you could do to make yourself good. It's all about Jesus. And Paul got this. This Pharisee of Pharisees got it. And that's what he's explaining in Philippians 3. And so as we turn back together to 2 Corinthians 11, keep all of that in mind. It's very important to keep all of that in mind that we need the righteousness that comes to us from the outside. That's how Paul considered his salvation. Not that he earned it himself, but that God gave it to him as a gift. And as we get to 2 Corinthians 11 and we see Paul start to play the madman to set up his booth and to invite you to come in and look at him behind bars as every insane person should be, (laughs) Paul, Paul is playing the fool. He says in verse 21 that he is speaking in foolishness. And again, verse 23, he's speaking as if he is insane. Because he's defending himself by looking to his good works. He did not want to do this. He did not want to bring out his good works. Remember, his good works are counted as rubbish. But he had to do this because he was being accused falsely. The line in the sand had been drawn. The two sides, false apostles, true apostles, were at war. And Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, went to defend his resume. And if he was, if he was going to boast, if he was going to play the fool... He's going to boast in servanthood. And that's exactly what he does. So let's look at this again. Starting in the middle of verse 21, Paul says, In whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. "...in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beating or beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. What a resume Paul is laying out for us here. Again, he doesn't want to do it. He's speaking as if he's insane, but he's speaking this way to set him apart from those who were cheating the Corinthians, from those who were harming the Corinthians with their false gospel. And their false gospel was to tell them to earn their righteousness by their works. So now Paul counts his own rap sheet of servanthood as evidence against them. I think there's a general lesson we can take from this. I didn't even finish Paul's list. You can run your eyes over verse 27 and following. There's more that he went through and we'll get to that next week. But I think a general lesson that we can initially take away from this is that if you want to truly serve your Lord, Expect some hardship, expect some difficulty, expect some pain and suffering, expect frustration. If you want to truly serve Jesus, this is what comes with it. Because how was Jesus treated? A lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty, a lot of frustration. You think it'll be better for us? Shouldn't be. Paul was told that he would live through this by Jesus himself. In Acts 9.16, Jesus told Ananias, who was to meet Paul, he said, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. It was a promise for Paul. He was going to suffer. And I think all followers of Jesus should expect that too. And Paul here does focus on this personal suffering. In this list, it's all of his suffering as a servant of Jesus, as a slave to Christ. That was Paul's focus in this list. And I think he went this route. Like, he he doesn't talk about his honorable position that he had in churches or the respect that he was given or how many baptisms he's performed or professions of faith he had at the last tent revival or anything like that. He goes down this route about suffering as a servant because false teachers don't suffer for Jesus. If they do, it's minimal and it's accidental. False teachers want to avoid suffering, if you want to turn with me to the next book of your Bible, Galatians, look at Galatians 6 with me, starting at verse 11, where Paul is explaining this same thing to them, setting himself apart from the false teachers in Galatia. Galatians 6, 11, it says, "...see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ." For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. What are the brand marks of Jesus? They were the beatings that Paul suffered for Jesus. But what about these false teachers? Verse 12, they compel you To be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They are teaching a false gospel. They're leading you astray because they're more worried about themselves than they are about your salvation. They don't want to be persecuted. And so they give you a works-based gospel. So Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, focuses on these brand marks of Christ. The suffering that he has endured for the sake of Jesus and if you go back to 2 Corinthians 11 with me, you'll notice in verses 21 and 22, Paul refers back to that inherited pedigree, this pedigree that he received from his parents, that he was a descendant of Abraham. He was an Israelite, a Hebrew. This is a pedigree that he had, and that's very important because the false apostles in Corinth seem to be of Jewish descent. That's why he's bringing it up. They were Jews who were emphasizing works for salvation. And he, of course, is speaking against that, but saying, look, their pedigree isn't better than mine. Yeah, they come along and they say they're Jews, and that gives them this authority to teach a different gospel. Well, no, no one's more Jewish than I am, Paul says. Their pedigree was not better than Paul's. His family search chart was more impressive than theirs. They couldn't have outdone him in this regard. Hardly anyone could claim to be more of a descendant of Abraham." Then Paul himself, he said in Acts 22.3, in a different context when he was in Jerusalem, he said, "'I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel.'" It's always hard for me to say that name, Gamaliel. That's better, Gamaliel. Uh, "'Strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are all are today. "'A Jew of Tarsus, brought up in Jerusalem.'" best teachers, best education, had all the certificates, all the diplomas. But again, he counted it all as loss. And so now, instead of going through the credibility that he earned up in his Jewish mindset, starting in verse 23, Paul talks about his credibility as a servant or as a slave of Jesus. So in your mind, think back to what we just looked at in Philippians When Paul was of the Jewish mindset that was earning righteousness with with God, he was talking about keeping the law. He was talking about being zealous as a Jew, persecuting the church, being blameless before others. He doesn't talk about any of those things here, does he? Now his credibility is found in suffering. That's really important. Paul's credibility is found in his suffering, suffering for Jesus. And remember, He's speaking like an insane person. (laughs) Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I more so, he says in his insanity. I I think, when I think of being a madman, I think of that moment in David's life when he was on the run from Saul. Do you remember when David feigned madness? He let the, the spittle run down his beard and, you know, he probably messed up his hair and was speaking in all kinds of babble. He's scribbling on the walls. That's what Paul's doing. Okay, picture that in your head as he's doing this because he's boasting in what he's done. But remember, if he's going to boast, he's going to boast in his suffering. He says, you think their servants, these false teachers, well, let me show you. Let's compare resumes and I will show you the suffering of a true servant. He says in verse 23 that he has been in far more labors, That word for labors really does just mean hard work. He's worked really hard. It talks about the, uh, it refers to, rather, the planting and the watering when people are sowing seeds. When Paul said in his first letter to them that he labored among them by planting, and then later, Barnabas or Apollos, rather, watered. Those were their labors among them. It's actual sacrificial effort, giving up ease and comfort in order to work. For Christ. That's what Paul says that he had done far more. And I think that it's really significant that this is listed first, because if you remember the context of what Paul's going through with the Corinthians, he had to defend himself for ministering to them for free. Do you remember that? The Corinthians were being told by the false teachers what, Paul didn't charge you? He must not be a very good teacher, because charging for that service showed that you were a really worthy teacher. Well, Paul said, no, I'm actually laboring far more than those false apostles. Back in verse 7 of this chapter, Paul said to them, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? That's labor, isn't it? That's sacrificial effort. And Paul puts that first. Next, he says imprisonments. He's been in far more imprisonments. That, of course, just means to be in custody, to be on lockdown, to be watched, to be supervised by people who have taken you away. Paul says, I've been in far more imprisonments. We can take from this that apparently the false teachers had been in some imprisonments. Apparently the false teachers had endured some sort of imprisonment, but they, of course, sought to avoid that, and that's why Paul was in far more labors, far more imprisonments. What's interesting is, if you follow the narrative in the book of Acts to the time that this letter was written, we only have one account of Paul being imprisoned up to this point. And that's when he was in Philippi, in Acts chapter 16. That amazing moment with the Philippian jailer when he cries out, what must I do to be saved? That's the only time in Acts up to this point when Paul had been imprisoned, as it was recorded by Luke. So that tells us there are many things that happened in Paul's life that we don't have an account of. He says he's been in far more imprisonments. He had experienced many prisons. Paul was able to leave a review for each prison in every city and say, you know, who had the best breakfast and all that stuff. He says he's also endured many beatings, beatings that's linked to his imprisonment. They didn't just, you know, gently take you and put you in a cushy cell, but you'd be beaten on your way there. And while you were there, he says he was beaten times without number. The Greek word that's translated times without number is the word hyperbole. It it just an amazing amount of times, an unfathomable amount of times he's been beaten. He endured much mistreatment for the sake of Jesus. And then, of course, many dangers. At the end of verse 23, he says, often in the danger of death, specifically danger of death. There were many times in Paul's life up to this point, because he was suffering for Jesus, where he thought, I might die today. I I mean, we just can't imagine the things that he went through. And we'll get into more detail here in a moment. But many times he was in danger of death. He lived through many moments that he thought would be his last. In verse 26, if we want to jump down there, he lists some specific other dangers, starting with his frequent journeys. He says he was in danger with his frequent journeys. How easy was it to get around back then? Not easy at all and he was a pioneer missionary. His job description from the Lord was to go out and reach unreached peoples. Many dangers. One of those dangers was rivers. He lists that in verse 26. As a pioneer missionary, he came across many dangers from rivers. It would be a constant threat that these travel ways they would take would flood. If you got caught in a torrent, it would just be awful. There was a time in my life when my family was camping. And if you remember my stories about camping before, it was always terrible and I hate it now and I'll never do it again. No, probably not. But um, every time we went camping, it would storm. It would be awful. And we would have to pack up in the middle of the night in the rain. Dad would have a bad attitude. He and mom would be fighting. I wouldn't know what what I was supposed to do because I was sleeping for two hours and we're trying to take the post apart for the tent. And it's terrible. Well, we would often go... In southern Missouri or near Lake of the Ozarks we would go to the Niangua River on float trips. We would go down the Niangua River on a raft or a canoe. And one time we were doing that with friends and the storm happened while we were on the river. And that was one of the scariest times of my life. And I wasn't with my parents. I'm an only child so no siblings. I was with my friend and his parents and we were on this raft and we got left behind. The other rafts and the canoes went down and we we like kept scraping the bottom and had to get up and we we couldn't see them anymore and it was lightning everywhere and the wind and the the waves of the river, it was just scary. And I remember as we got back and we could finally see the coast again and we could see our crew, I just yelled and I didn't even yell a word. It was just like, ah! (laughs) One of the dumbest times of my life. But it was just, I didn't even know what to say. I just know that, knew that it was awful what we just went through. And I was emotional in an inarticulate way at the moment. Imagine how many times Paul went through dangerous rivers. And he didn't have a nice nylon or rubber or whatever uh, raft like we have today. Dangers often from rivers. Truly, truly scary. He also says dangers from robbers. The cities and towns he was going through were a little less civilized than Utah Valley, (laughs) Uh, like we experience today. It was like the south side of Chicago everywhere he went. Just terrible. You could get robbed anywhere. No offense, Wayne, to the Chicago hate there. He was in danger from Israelites, his fellow countrymen. Paul's own countrymen totally disowned him. In the book of Acts, you see this over and over again. I want to show you a few verses In Acts 9, verse 23, it says, When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. You ever had your neighbors plot together to do away with you? (laughs) Verse 29, it says, He was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to kill him, to put him to death. Six verses apart, again, people are plotting to put him to death. Acts 17, verse 5, The Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. They found out where the Christians were meeting and they said, let's bring them out and do with them what we want. Verse 13 of the same chapter, says, when the Jews of Thessalonica found out the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Next chapter, Acts 18, verse 12, it says, While Galileo was, was pro counsel of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Over and, over, and this is just a sampling. Over and over again, they were trying to kill him, they were trying to arrest him, they were trying to bring him into court so that he would be persecuted for his faith. His fellow countrymen were doing this. But not just them, it was the Gentiles also. Many Gentiles hated Paul. In Acts chapter 14, verses 5 through 7, it says, when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of that name. I'm having a hard time with names today, so I'm not going to try that one. And Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding region. Verse 7, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So you had Gentiles and Jews coming together to kill Paul. What could bring Gentiles and Jews together? Well, salvation is one way. We are a new man in Christ. All believing Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. But another way is persecuting the church. Paul displayed that in his life. And in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16, it says it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by her fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters, Gentile masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes, Off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. So, Gentiles have gods too. And when you touch on their gods and you preach against their idols, you'll be persecuted by them too. Jews and Gentiles persecuted Paul. He says in verse 26 he also faced dangers that were urban, rural, and at sea. He had no rest no matter where he went, he couldn't go out to the middle of the sea to get rest. No land or sea gave solace to the Apostle Paul. He also faced dangers from false brothers, it says at the end of verse 26. Those who faked their conversion for personal gain or to destroy the church from the inside, they were a constant threat to Paul. Well, I think we'll pause there and next week we'll pick back up looking at verses 24 and 25. But just observe these amazing events in the life of Paul. Why was he going through all of that? Again, we've just scratched the surface here. Why was Paul willing to go through all of that? It was because of his love for his Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing else could compel a person to go through this. No amount of money would compel someone to do this, or hope of fame or glory. I mean, that's all way too risky. Dangers of death constantly. But his life he counted as loss for the sake of Jesus. His life was of no account. He told the Ephesian elders when he was meeting with them in Acts chapter 20 that he counted his life as nothing for the sake of the glory of God, through Jesus Christ. That was his priority. And for all of those who have believed in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, all of those who have received salvation as a free gift from God through the work of Jesus Christ, we can say together with Paul, we count it all as rubbish. All that we have apart from Jesus, all that we could ever do to look good, it's, it's dung for the sake of knowing Jesus our Lord, our only hope. Because He died on the cross in our place for our sins and He rose again that our sins may be forgiven and we may be given life eternal. That begins now.